Please open your Bibles with me to Psalm 6. Psalm 6. This is a Psalm of David. This Psalm is another raw, desperate cry to the Lord for mercy and deliverance. This is the fourth Psalm in a row in which we find David not just asking, but begging, calling out in desperation for God to save him. In Psalms 3, 4, and 5, we see David asking to be delivered from his enemies, from people chasing him, mocking him, and making his life miserable in one way or another. But here in Psalm 6, we find, we find David crying out for deliverance from God himself. In this psalm, we find a picture of repentance. Hear now the word of the Lord, Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed And greatly troubled, they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Pray with me. Father, please give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might understand what is in your word. We submit ourselves to your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that by your word preached this morning through the work of your Holy Spirit in the hearts of your people that you would make us more like Christ that you would even this morning call sinners to yourself, that you would strengthen and sustain those of your people who are weak, that you would call those who are wandering back to yourself, that you would teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness. I pray for myself that you would choose my words for me, that your will be done, and that all I say is pleasing in your sight, that you would, by your word, even as I preach, strengthen those who hear and even strengthen me as I preach. For your great glory and the salvation of souls, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to make a contrast for us this morning. I want to show the difference between true repentance and a worldly apology. I don't don't do this to dog on the world. After all, we should expect the world to act like the world. We should not expect true repentance from those who do not know Christ. I do this in order to show us the contrast between what it looks like to turn from sin and throw yourself at God's mercy and what it looks like to be sorry that you got caught doing something you shouldn't have or sorry for the consequences of being caught. You know what a worldly apology looks like. It looks a lot like the the apology you get from a three-year-old after he threw a block at his sister. I'm sorry you were aware I threw the block. We've all seen them on TV I sincerely apologize if you were offended by whatever I said or did. There's no admission of actual guilt. 
There might be genuine sorry, sorrow, but it's usually not the sorrow for whatever was said or done. It is for the repercussions of being caught or called out. The second kind of worldly apology is the apology for everything in general and nothing in particular. We, we see this often in the critical race theory or social, ju- social justice arena. In this case, there's someone in a constant state of aggrievement, and somebody has to say sorry. They must apologize for something they rarely have any control over, like what their ancestors did or said, or the fact that their ancestors looked like some people who did or said some bad things. That's not to make light of the sins of the past or the sins of the present, but these apologies accomplish nothing. They don't satisfy anyone, especially those demanding the apology. The problem is that this is all the world has. Nothing is solved. Nothing gets better. The world has a sin problem. That is, they know deep in their bones that they are sinners. Because they are created in His image, God has given everyone a conscience. And even when the conscience is as broken as a bad compass. The needle still points somewhere, and in most cases it is away from themselves and to anyone or anything else. But because the consciences are broken and not completely gone, there's a kind of undercurrent of guilt permeating everything. So apologies are demanded. But all that does is kind of spread the guilt around a little, like if you're wiping a dirty mirror with a dirty rag. What is missing then is a true understanding of sin of grace, of mercy, and of atonement. The world has no categories for any of these, but the people of God do. But we must lay hold of them and make use of them. Otherwise, we are in a worse position than the world because we are guilty twice over, first for the sin and second for not bringing it to where it can be dealt with, that is, the cross of Christ. So what does Psalm 6 teach us about dealing with our own sin? We'll look at this psalm under two headings. In the first seven verses, we see David's distress. All of David, body, soul, and spirit, is in anguish. He sees and understands the anger, the anger of God at his sin. And then in verses 8 through 10, David sees and understands God's forgiveness. He knows that God has heard him, and that changes everything. So let's turn to verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. David begins by calling out directly to the Lord. He understands that he is indeed guilty of sin, but he cries out for mercy. He asks the Lord not to punish him in his anger. David knows that if he would be punished to the extent that his guilt deserves, it would destroy him. No one can stand up under the just judgment of God. We saw this in Psalm 1 in verses 5 and 6. Therefore, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The just wrath of God will flatten the wicked. They are unrepentant to the end, rebelling, and so are not counted among God's people. But David is not like this. He does not refuse the fatherly discipline of the Lord. He knows the writer He knows what the writer of the Hebrews does, that God only disciplines his children. Hebrews 12 says, 
he disciplines us for our good, that we might share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so to paraphrase John Calvin, David doesn't want to get out of all the punishment, the discipline. That would be unreasonable. It is better to be disciplined by God than to not be. What he is afraid of is the wrath of God, the just wrath of God poured out on sinners would be hell. David is willing to be chastised, to be disciplined by God as a father, but he does not want, in fact, cannot bear his anger. Verse 2, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. David grounds what he is asking for in God's character. He asks for grace because he knows that God is gracious. He doesn't claim that he's getting more than he deserves. He knows and acknowledges his guilt before God, as I have said, but as, at the same time, he can appeal to God's grace because he knows who God is. As you would have read in Exodus 34, when God revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai after Moses asked to see God's face. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is merciful. God is gracious, God is just, God is holy, and God loves his people. David knows this and puts himself at God's mercy, asking not only for grace, but for healing. David was miserable in his sin and its results. Most specifically, God removing his blessing from him, as we'll see in verse 4. David says that his very bones are troubled. And in verse 3, he says, My soul is also greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? David is hurting down to his soul. All of him is in anguish. In Hebrew, in Hebrew the, the idea of being and bone and soul are all the same. While the suffering of David might well have had a physical component to it, it seems as though the main way David was suffering in, is in what they used to call soul sadness. David is depressed. He had sinned and felt the discipline of God and now was depressed. Now, let me be careful to clarify here. Not all depression is a result of sin. There may be a vast variety of reasons for depression. Maybe you're not getting any sleep. Maybe you're, you're physically ill. But in this case, it seems as though David was depressed because of sin. And from the point of view of how David is feeling, it doesn't really matter whether he had sinned in some spectacular way and is sensing God's judgment for this particular sin, or if he is depressed by some circumstance and feels that God is disciplining him in general. The point is that he is overwhelmed by what is happening and is absolutely miserable. So miserable, he can't even finish his thought. At the end of verse 3, he begins asking, But you, O Lord, how long? 
but he can't even finish his sentence. In other Psalms, David finished the thought. In, in Psalm 13, for one example, he asks, oh, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? So we can infer that this is what David would have said had he had the gumption. Now, before we move on, I want to point a few things out. First, I expect that everyone within the sound of my voice has felt this to some degree or another at some point. Maybe you feel like this right now. Maybe you feel, maybe you, you have done something wrong and you know it. You know what is going on right now is a result of your sin. Either the direct consequences of this sin or God's hand of discipline. Or it could be that you feel like this and have no idea why. You're just overwhelmed and find it hard to get out of bed in the morning. Your situation might not be your fault, and you can identify with David in this verse. Or in, in verse 1, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. In either case, the right thing to do is to run to the Lord, to ask for His grace, to be healed, to be restored. He hears the prayers of His people. Second, look at what David did when he was at his lowest. He did not try to tough it out, to grit his teeth and get over it with his own strength. He went to the Lord directly. Four times in the first three verses, David calls on the Lord. He knows that his only salvation is found in the Lord, in the one who has made him a promise and will keep it. David continues in verse 4, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. David felt as though the Lord had left him. As I mentioned earlier, it was as if God removed himself and thus his blessing from David. Now, God is everywhere present and did not actually remove himself from David as though he walked across the room and God was over here and David was over there. What is in view here is the kind of thing we see in the blessing of Aaron in number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It was as though God had hidden his face. And David now asked God to turn, or more accurately, to return, to come back and rescue him. Not because David is awesome. Not because he is the king and he deserves it. Not because God owed it to him. David asked the Lord to return and save him for the sake of God's steadfast or covenant love. This covenant love is the basis for all of what David prays in this psalm. Without it, David would have no reason to believe that God would even hear him, let alone answer. But because God has promised David that he will enter the Lord's own house by the abundance of his steadfast covenant love, David can pray this. This is the turning point in this psalm. This is the point at which David asks for deliverance. Before he asked for leniency, for mercy, for the Lord not to deal with him according to his wrath. He asked for healing, for grace. But all of these are grounded here in this. David asked the Lord to save him, to deliver his life because of the promises that God has already made. Let us learn from this. In the words of James Montgomery Boyce, in times of victory, call upon God, praise Him. In times of defeat, call upon God, ask for help. In times of temptation, call upon God, seek deliverance. In the dark night of the soul, call upon God, request light. God is our pathway through the darkness. 
He is our one sure hope in life and in death. He is our hope even when we are unaware of his presence. David continues to lay out his case for deliverance in verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? David is not appealing to God's ego here, as though God needed David's praise in order to be fulfilled. No, God is complete in himself. He needs nothing. There is nothing anyone can offer him to make him more satisfied. Even so, David asks that God would save him for his own glory. David asks for salvation so that he might praise the Lord. Calvin again, after God has bestowed all things freely upon us, he requires nothing in return but a grateful remembrance of his benefits. This gratitude, to this gratitude, reference is made when David says that there will be no remembrance of God in death nor any celebration of his praise in the grave. His meaning is that if by the grace of God he shall be delivered from death, he will be grateful for it and keep it in remembrance. David continues his lament in verses 6 and 7. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It, show, it grows weak because of all my foes. It is clear that David's depression is not just a case of the blues. If we look at the language here, it's obvious that David isn't sleeping. The phrase, every night I flood my bed with tears, literally reads, every night I make my bed swim. This is a picture of a man near total despair. This cycle of depression and insomnia and grief leading to physical symptoms is one many, many of us can relate to. If any of you have experienced this kind of depression, this feeling that God has turned his back on you, take heart, you're not alone. Feelings of depression do not mean that you are not a Christian. There have been giants of the faith who have battled this beast. Beginning with David here in the Psalms, and then just to name a few in church history off the top of my head, Luther and Calvin and Spurgeon. Spurgeon once said of his depression, My spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour, and yet knew not what I wept for. It is in times like these when we are at our lowest, when we feel that we are too tired to do anything, even things that must be done in order to function in life, when we are too tired to get out of bed and get dressed, too worn out to get in the car and go to work, too exhausted to get the kids off to school, too weary to clean the house, too depressed to go to church, too burdened to read the Bible, too sluggish even to pray. It is in times like these when all we can do is cry out, How long, O Lord? It is in times like these that we must cling to what we know when the darkness is not so dark. We must cling to Christ. We must cling to the gospel down to our last fingernail. And we must remember that we are held by God who by a God whose grip will not falter. He will not let us go. To quote Spurgeon again, I know perhaps as well as anyone what depression means and what it is to feel myself think, sinking lower and lower. Yet at the worst, when I reach my lowest depths, I have an inward peace which no pain or depression can in the least disturb. Trusting in Jesus Christ, my Savior, there is still a blessed quietness in the deep caverns of my soul. Though upon the surface, 
a rough tempest may be raging, and there may be little apparent calm. David's relief came from God by grace through faith. David was trusting what, or rather, whom would come in the future. The one through whom God would establish an everlasting kingdom. Christian, we have relief in the way that matters most by grace through faith. We will not be taken down to Sheol. We will not taste eternal death. We will not be left in our suffering forever, no matter how long it lasts in this life. In Christ, we have eternal life. Because he suffered, because he bore the just wrath of God, we know that we, those who run to him in faith and throw themselves at his mercy, we will not waste away. Because of his covenant love, he will hold us fast. The world has no way to deal with the guilt of sin and the depression that follows. It is only in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that we can find wholeness. The wholeness that comes from actual forgiveness. Because unlike David, whose death would have robbed the glory robbed God of his glory. Christ in his death showed off the greatest glory of the Father in his dealing with all the sins of all of his people, that he might be both the just and the justifier of all who believe, as Paul says in Romans. But the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It is for this reason that God will keep his promise, that he does justify his people by grace through faith. It is for this reason that David could continue. David looked forward along with all the Old Testament saints, as it says in Hebrews. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For a people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland, and if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them a city. David knew someone was coming, but he didn't know who. We do. We have it better than David he looked forward, but we can look backward to the finished work of Jesus. We can look backward and through the ears of faith hear Jesus say, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the promise we have in Christ. This is what we can cling to when we are too weary to see or do anything else. And even when we are too weary to do even this, the Lord will still uphold his people. In Psalm 37, David will say, 
The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. And though he fall, he will not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. It is only by faith, by trust, that the Lord is good and his promises are sure that even when all circumstances seem to be pointing in the opposite direction that David can continue. And in verse 8 he says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. What changed for David here? There's a drastic shift in mood between verse 7 and verse 8 of this psalm. It's almost as though a different person is writing the last three verses. And some unbelieving commentators believe that this is the case. They claim it. But because they are unbelieving, they don't, they can't. They are unable to understand the change. This is a change in heart brought about not by a change in circumstance, but by God. God heard David, and David knew it. This is what changed. This is why he could stand up and say, Get away from me, leave all you workers of evil. Stop it with your wickedness. The Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. And as we have said before in looking at Psalm 5, for the Lord to hear is for him to act. David is given the certainty that while not a single fact in his situation has changed, the Lord has heard, and that is enough. It is now in his hands. You see, repentance is a practical thing. It humbles us before God, and God only gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Luther said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. So if it is true that all the Christian life is repentance, and it is, it also means that repentance is more than just a one-time event like the door you step through in a Christian life and then leave it behind. It is a way of life. It is a part of the gospel. It is a part of the fabric of our daily lives. The gospel is for all of us, all the time. And when we see that, we realize that it is not enough to say sorry and feel bad for your sin, but that we must turn from it. We weep for it, yes, but then we must cast it out. We must say with David, depart from me, you workers of evil. And then in verses 9 and 10, David finishes this psalm much differently than he began it. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. What a great privilege. It would be unbelievable if God's very word did not tell us that when the people of God pray, he hears us. And he not only hears us, he delivers us. Psalm 34 says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. This doesn't mean that we will be kept from every trial, from every trouble, from every difficulty. No, we are promised the opposite by Jesus. In the world, you will have tribulation. But it does mean that we are not alone in our tribulation. We are not in a place that God does not ultimately want us. As though his hands are tied, and as much as he'd like to help, there's nothing he can do. The circumstances are just too much for him to overcome. 
No, we can have confidence that when we are in difficulty, we are just where God wants us. Whether it is for a time of discipline to drive us back to Him in repentance, or a time of refining to strengthen us like tempered metal, we can know for sure that we don't have to, we cannot despair. The Lord hears us, the Lord accepts our plea, and whether it is right away or in the end, our enemies will be turned back. This word turned back is the same one that David used to ask God to return to him. Do you see the connection? When God turns back or returns, his enemies must turn back. They must return. They cannot stand up to the Almighty One. To paraphrase, to paraphrase Calvin again, from this we can learn that no matter what we face, there is no opposition in the whole world we cannot bear if we are fully persuaded that God loves us. Do you realize this? Do you realize that God actually loves his people? That he does not just tolerate you? He does not begrudgingly, begrudgingly bring you along because Jesus asked him to? All of redemption was God's idea. The Father planned it, the Son accomplished it, and the Spirit applies it. If you are in Christ, you were chosen before the foundation of the world to be redeemed for his glory. And when we understand this, when we understand that we are chosen in Christ and that the Father loves us, we don't have to be afraid of anything. God answered David and returned. He showed him his face again. But you see, God's ultimate return was the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When, Christ. when God the Son came to earth, born of a virgin, He lived a perfect life in our place. He died on the cross in our place, in the place of all who would ever believe. He took the wrath of God against sin, and then He completed His work, rising from the dead. He redeemed His people from their sin, paying the debt to God's righteousness we could not so that all who would come to him by faith would be covered, will be fully and finally saved. But if you have not come to him by faith, if you have not submitted yourself, your life, all of you, to Christ, you are at odds with him. You are still his enemy. And if you continue in this rebellion, in the end, you will be put to shame. All those who are not in Christ will be punished in eternity, for eternity in hell but it does not have to be this way. Jesus told a parable of a king in Luke 14. What king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a long way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. You see, the king with half the soldiers has no chance for victory, so he asked for terms of peace. In this parable, you are the lesser king, and Christ is the greater. You have no chance. Christ is coming. And the terms of peace are total surrender. Those are the terms, total surrender. But instead of losing everything, you gain everything when you surrender totally to Christ. Come to Christ. Stay with Christ. He will have you, and through him you will have peace the peace that passes anything that makes sense. When nothing else makes sense, trust in Him. You will not find rest anywhere else. You will not find true peace or forgiveness or wholeness or satisfaction or mercy anywhere else. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come now, today. It doesn't take a magic formula. 
walking an aisle or raising a hand or a certain set of words repeated after someone. It takes repentance, hating your sin, turning from it, turning from yourself, turning from trying to live up to any kind of standard on your own and trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you hear us. Thank you for your discipline that drives us back to you. Help us to not resist, to f- not to fight your loving hand of discipline, but repent. Help us to hope in you, to cry out to you from our depression and know that you hear us. Give us a renewed hope in Christ. I pray that if there are any here this morning that are still in rebellion against you, that you would bring them to you by your grace, that you would overcome them and their rebellion and bring them to yourself in glory. I pray for any hearing my voice who are in the depths of depression, that they would cry out to you and that you would hear them, that you would return to them to shine your face upon them and give them peace. In Jesus' name, amen.